It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Our sermon title today is God's Character Defended, and we'll be in Job 40, uh, verses 1 through 14. We're almost near the end of Job, and we will conclude next week. So as you're turning to Job 40, we find ourselves in the middle of God's response to Job. That's a very normal Christian religious thing to hear on a Sunday morning, especially in a service like this. God's response. However, I would remind you that we are 40 chapters into the book of Job. And we are just now hearing from God. Job has suffered the loss of children, wealth, future prospects, health, and relationships. His suffering has gone on, as is the case for some of us, for months and even perhaps years. Day after day, week after week of suffering, back and forth conversation with his well-meaning friends. And through all this time, Job is wondering and asking, Where's God? Is he real? Will he reveal himself? Will he answer? And in many ways, it's the exact same for you and I this morning. We feel the cold silence of God. And we wonder, is he real? Does he care? Will he show up? Well, God does show up here in our narrative, and in chapters 38 through 41 of Job, God's response to Job and the ongoing poetic discussion that he's had with with his friends is seen. In these chapters, uh, we're reminded of who the book of Job is really about. The central figure of the book of Job is not Job, but rather the character and the person of God. God, he defends his character because through the whole book, His character has been attacked, misunderstood, or just flatly ignored. And we do that too sometimes. It was Satan, then Job's wife, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, and even Job himself. They've all had their hot takes and they've been wrong when it comes to God. So we jump in to God's answer to Job in our passage this morning. And our main point is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ are not God. Now, we may say we are not God. That's a very Sunday school answer, something religious folk like us might say. But you and I, we live, we operate, we think, and we function as though we have more ability, more control, more wisdom, and more righteousness than we actually have. God has a word for Job and for you and I this morning. So would you read with me, please, Job 40, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. 
Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. And look on everyone who's proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Well, I want to pose three questions. We have three questions in our passage and we'll consider an answer. So question number one, does Job have more knowledge? I get this directly from verses one and two. And these verses really are a break in some ways from what you could call God's first speech in chapter 38 and 39. At first, this first speech, God responds and asks Job a series of questions. Where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world in this earth? 38.4. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? 38.22. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of the Orion up in the sky and the stars, 38, 31. The beginning verses in our chapter almost act as a short pause in a long line of questioning. Job has been wanting God to show up. And God has spoken. What do you have to say now, Job? Do you still find fault with me? You've been arguing your case, and ultimately you've been arguing against my character and my sovereign ways. So, you got something to say? The underlying question that the earlier chapters in these first verses force us to ask of Job and of ourselves is this. Do we have more knowledge? You may have a translation that doesn't use fault finder in verse 2 but rather something like critic or arguer or contender. One helpful translation puts it this way. Now, what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? And that's what a critic and a fault finder does. We point out where we think, we think the other person is incorrect. So allow me to give you a few examples. You find fault and you point out to your spouse that you've been right all along as it relates to your most recent political, financial, marital, or sports disagreement. We are praying for you couples who have both Viking and Packer loyalties. May the Lord help you. You find fault and you tell your friend that they've disrespected you and embarrassed you recently. You find fault and you tell your parents that they've yet again misunderstood your motives. You're a fault finder. And that is what Job has done. Job has consistently, through this entire book that we've gone over, Job has consistently declared that he is innocent from any wrongdoing or sin that would bring this kind of judgment on his life. 
So Job says, if the fault's not with me, then it must be with God. And through all these poetic ramblings that we've covered, Job has not heard a word from his friends or from God himself to prove that he isn't seeing his situation rightly. Until, until God shows up and starts asking some questions of Job. And one of the key underlying questions has been, what do you think you actually know? Are you implying, God says, that you need to correct me? Do you have more knowledge than me? Well, if you believe in a God, the obvious, easy answer is no. We are not God. We don't know more than God, and neither does Job. Yet this is a needed reminder and rebuke to you and I. Brothers and sisters, we function far too proudly and independently. We assume more knowledge and insights on other, others' motives. We assume more knowledge and insight on the workings of God in this world. And we assume more knowledge and insight on his redemptive purposes and character. And compared to what Job had, God has been kind to give us a measure more of information and revelation. However, we walk around this world thinking we know more than we really do. And if you don't think that's you, if you think you are the exception, then you may be the most blind among us. Question number two. Does Job have moral superiority? I get this directly from verses 6 through 9. So look again at the text, but especially key in on verse 8. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? One writer explains Job's moral posturing this way. In defending his own innocence so emphatically and lashing out so boldly at God because of his suffering, Job has essentially charged God with acting unjustly. For a mortal to presume himself guiltless and to impugn God's just governance of the world approaches the sin of presumptuous pride. So here's another way to frame that. God, you're not good because you haven't met my standard of what I think good looks like for my life. That should hit us pretty hard. Job has fallen into the trap of having a narrow view of God's character based on his own personal experiences and lens. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, how we allow our lens and our circumstances to determine who God is in our mind. But verse 8 tells you and I that Job was viewing God through his own personal morality. God, I'm innocent. I'm righteous. I know I have integrity. If Job is in the right morally, the implication is that God is in the wrong morally for allowing Job to suffer. 
So let me give you a few examples in how you and I might do this. The really moral and good things of life are my own preferences. That's what's good and moral. And if you or God's word don't meet my extra and non-biblical preferences, (laughs) you're not good. My standard of good is having this kind of health. But God, cancer came. So you're not good. Good means I never feel guilty or confronted with any kind of flaw or sin in my life. So God must not be good. Because he kind of makes me feel bad sometimes. I think good means that I'm not restrained and I am my own authority. So God must not be good. Or like Asap in Psalm 73, we think that we've wasted our time doing good because we suffer and others prosper. Like Job, we often walk around this world posturing ourselves. Christians are notorious for this. Posturing ourselves as morally superior. And perhaps unknowingly and indirectly placing ourselves even above God. Discouragement gives way to complaint, and complaint gives way to joylessness. Allow me to read an extended word on discouragement, suffering, and seeing God incorrectly. Paul Tripp on suffering. Discouragement opens your heart to a lifestyle of complaint, and complaint opens your heart to accusations against God. The connection being, if you're complaining, you're attacking God. Although you're convinced that you're seeing life accurately, discouragement has distorted your perspective, and your assumptions about life have caused you to see one thing more than the other. What's the danger of a lifestyle of complaint? If you believe that God is not only in control of the grand movements of human history, but also in control of the particular details of your life, and if you believe that what is out of your control is under his control, then it is important to understand that there is no such thing as a purely horizontal complaint. If I'm complaining about the insensitivity of my doctor, the lack of attention I'm getting from a pastor or friend, and the fact that my friends lack sympathy and understanding. I'm not just complaining about those people, but also about the God who ordained all of them to be in my life. And the more I'm comfortable with complaints being the normal language of my life, the more likely that lifestyle of complaint will morph into direct accusation against God. If you are suffering, and suffering has left you discouraged, and more given you to complaint than praise, it's very important that you don't assume the accuracy and logic of your perspectives on life. If complaint has the power to focus your vision, it can also twist and bend your perception of reality and the God who rules it. In this way, every sufferer 
needs to have their assumptions about life lovingly challenged, both by the clarifying truths of Scripture and the loving corrections of the body of Christ. Maybe you don't see things clearly. Maybe your assumptions aren't accurate. And maybe God is not who you've come to think he is. It's that last line that maybe God is not who you've come to think he is. That's what Job is wrestling with. The complaint of his circumstances has formed in him a heart that is complaining against God. So maybe you and I need the scriptures, like Job's story here, like the example and the teachings of Christ and well-meaning friends in our life to give us fresh and accurate reminders of God's character and ours. You are not morally superior. May God use his means to show us this and humble us. We're not as clever or moral as we might think. So here's how to frame it and chew on it this week. Tomorrow's Monday, right? So on a Monday morning, how do I wrestle with this and frame it and chew on it? Question. If God has the moral high ground and all authority, can I trust him to have his best for me? Can I trust him for him to choose what good looks like in my life? Well, may the Lord help us. We move on to question number three. Does Job have authority and power? Well, this is the underlying question we read in verses 10 through 14. So look again at these verses. God challenges Job to adorn himself and cover himself with majesty and dignity and glory and splendor. Basically says, if you think you know more, if you think you're morally superior, well, try to look the part. And don't just look the part, verses 12 and 13, play the part. If you think you know everything, if you think you're so moral, put yourself in a kingly and authoritative position over everyone else. Oh, Job, if you are so good, if you're so righteous, well, be a king. Sit on a throne. Look down on others with power and authority. Well, verse 14, I think, is the kicker. Dress the part, play the part, and God says, I will acknowledge that you're right. In fact, if you have this kind of authority and a power in your own right hand, well, just save yourself. You've been wallowing for months and maybe years, Job, regarding your circumstance. Just save yourself. Pull yourself up from the wreckage, dust yourself off, and make your life better. Well, the obvious implication is that if Job could do this, he wouldn't need God at all. And isn't that interesting? For those of us who question whether we need God, we often admit that we're not able to do things in our own power. And this is where Job, and I think you and I are left stating Rather, rather emphatically, I'm not majestic. I don't have power and authority over everyone else, let alone my own situation. 
So we may pay lip service to that on a Sunday morning, but do we functionally live and act in the life that God has given us as though we have more power and authority than we really do? This is my spouse. These are my kids. This is my house. This is my body. This is my rights. This is my country. This is my church. Really? In the Christian worldview, according to the scriptures, do we really have any authority and power? Does it really belong to us? Or rather, does authority and power belong to God alone? And he very graciously, very kindly has given us many good gifts in this life to enjoy and to steward well for his use and glory and fame. Now, you may get the impression reading through these verses and these chapters that all this questioning from God is because he's in fact angry with Job. However, there is nothing in Job's narrative that says God is angry with him. But very directly, God questions Job and forces him, and by way of us having the scriptures, forces us to wrestle with this question. Do I hold tightly onto authority and power in my life? Are my fists clenched around what God has given me to use and leverage for His glory and not my own? Do I set myself as righteous, the majestic king on the throne of self, as I interact with others and with the God I claim to follow? Am I a faithful follower of Christ? Or am I a faithful champion of self? Do I have the power to change people and circumstances? Do I have authority to dictate that God's sovereign plan for my life should meet all my personal preferences? Am I in charge? All of this has to lead to some kind of answer. Now, we've sought to answer it in part, but Job himself gives us the correct response. We've asked, does Job have more knowledge? Does Job have moral superiority? Does Job have authority and power? Here, our answer is no. No, I'm of small account. Look back with me in verses 3 through 5, please. I'll read them again. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, but I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. One writer I came across this week said this, The greatest man of the East grasps that he's not so great compared to God. If you're new to Lakewood and you drop in and hear a passage like this, it feels very, very somber. You may wrongly come into the conclusion 
that we teach, well, you know, if God's in control, we just let go and let God. We don't have any responsibility. We don't have to act. We have no part in all of this. It's God. We're all just pawns in God's big cosmic game. Well, that doesn't merely go against what this church has taught for decades, but it goes against the very nature of the scriptures themselves. So the point here this morning is not to diminish our part to play, but rather to magnify the very character of God. We are far too big in our own estimation. And our God is far too small in our mind. We pray small prayers. We put limits on what God can do in our own hearts and the hearts and souls of others. We put limits on what God can do in our families and in our community. Job's confession in these verses doesn't relieve him of his duty to serve, to work, to lead, and to live a courageous life for God. This confession in verses 3 through 5, it tells us that like Job, we don't have an answer for God other than recognizing our smallness and our utter dependence upon Him. Many of us have made the mistake of reading Job and thinking this Job and Job's life was about him. And Job thought that for a time too. Job lived and operated for a season of life as though his life was about him. Job centered himself as the king, the wise, and the moral. But Job's terrible suffering was used by God to defend God's character, not just to Satan, but even to Job, to tell Job who God was and those in Job's life. Job's terrible suffering had deep divine purposes in it, even if after the fact those purposes weren't as clear as we'd like. The suffering of Job and God's response and questioning are a discipleship tool to you and I to reorient our lives and even our suffering in light of who God is. We don't know. We don't have the moral high ground. We don't have authority and power. God does and God alone. Faithful followers of Christ are not God. I, I can't help but think of a man who would come thousands of years after Job. A man who had been given a measure of success and reputation. A, a man who was a bit funny looking, but had people looking up to him and following him. A man who spoke the words of God faithfully. A man who didn't center life on himself, but another. I'm, of course, talking about John the baptizer. And I say baptizer because all my Baptist friends like to say John was a Baptist. But hear John the baptizer's words in John 3. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The joy of not being the center of life. The joy of people not looking at himself, but looking to Christ. He says, my joy is complete because people aren't looking to me. They're looking to Christ. And John finishes and he says this. He must increase. I must decrease. This world outside and inside the church is far too self-focused. This life is not about our preferences and glory, but rather the glory of another, Christ Jesus. My friends, if you've made this life about you, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Turn away, repent, believe, and live for another. As we trust in Jesus' death on the cross for sinners, as we believe in his literal resurrection to new life, may we too die a death to self and be raised by the Spirit to a new kind of life starting now. Would you pray that God would help us do that? Father, That is a big prayer. That we would die to self and by the Spirit of God live for another. Would you help us decrease so that Jesus would increase? Would you help us to confess and to turn away? To repent of our self-sufficiency and pride? Of our superior knowledge and morality in our own mind? God, would we live and rub shoulders with others in a more gracious way? Would we be faithful followers of Christ and not promoters of self? Lord, help us to do all these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.